Today's scripture lesson, which I'm going to read in just a moment, is one of those maybe overly familiar passages in the New Testament, Jesus walking on the water. That phrase has become common lingo for impossible or extraordinary accomplishments. If my boss believes I can meet that deadline, she must think I walk on water. The phrase has infiltrated popular culture and there are songs about walking in water from everyone from Credence Clearwater and Ozzy Osbourne to Amy Grant and Toad the Wet Sprocket. It's just a part of our common vernacular. But as familiar as it is, this particular scene has always troubled me. I don't doubt that Jesus could walk on water or invite Peter to do the same. Of course he could. But something about this smacks of a magic trick more than a miracle. I read an article this week in which one author describes, uh, talks about a college classmate who loved to define faith as stepping out of airplanes knowing that God will catch you. The author said her own response was that surely God has better things to do than catch people stupid enough to jump, step out of airplanes. But honestly, this story can spawn and has spawned some bad theology. Peter's antics are held up as evidence that faith means taking pointless risks. Jesus' rebuke, you of little faith, why did you doubt, can make us believe that if we, our faith is just strong enough, then no harm will ever come to us. When bad things happen, and you know they will, it leads us to believe that our lack of faith caused this harm. Or even worse, that God isn't powerful enough or compassionate enough to protect us. And I don't think any of that is what Matthew intended. So I want to take a fresh look at this passage today. This falls right on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14. I begin in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, why did you doubt, O you of little faith? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So, 
Jesus has just returned from sabbatical. <laughs> Seriously. It's been a busy season of healing and teaching all over Galilee. Having fed the 5,000, Jesus tucks the disciples into the boat, sends them across the lake, and goes up the mountain alone to pray and to rest. Don't discount the value of that for Jesus or for any of us. When he's ready to rejoin his comrades, Matthew says the disciples are somewhere in the Sea of Galilee, far from land. Just to give you an idea, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long by about eight miles wide. Certainly not the size of Fort Loudon Lake, but not just a backyard pond either. Matthew says this, this scene takes place in the early hours of the morning. Now in my book, that means 8, 8.30, but remember that in the Jewish tradition, the new day begins at sunset. So I'm guessing this to be midnight, 1, 2, 3 a.m., something like that, pitch darkness. In the boat, the disciples are battling wind and waves when all of a sudden, some ghost or zombie or something comes toward them walking on the water. Now, you may remember that in the ancient world, the sea was believed to be the place of chaos, all the forces fighting against God's well-ordered creation. If I'm a disciple, given the wind and the waves and the late hour, hairs on my neck are already starting to stand up. And when a figure comes toward me, walking on the water, every muscle in my body is in fight or flight mode. And that's when Matthew pens one of the greatest understatements in the entire Bible. And they cried out in fear. <laughs> really? You think? When Jesus sees that fear, though, Matthew says he immediately speaks to them. Immediately. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. It's okay. It's just me. And that's when Peter speaks up. Now, Peter is that friend, and all of us have one, or maybe you are that one, who talks first and thinks next. Instead of ready, aim, fire, it's always ready, fire, aim. Some people have to think first before they can speak. Not Peter. Peter has never had an unexpressed thought in his life. He figures out what he's thinking by saying it, getting it out there. So Peter blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind, which is, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And again, Matthew, master of understatement, has Jesus respond with the driest of wit. Come. Well, you know what happens next. Peter steps out of the boat and takes a few steps toward Jesus before he panics and starts to sink. Jesus reaches out his hand, helps him back up, and they both go back to the boat. Now, I don't know how many sermons I've heard, I don't know how many sermons I've preached on this passage when they all seem to focus on Peter and how he sinks because he takes his eyes off Jesus. When he pays attention to the wind and the waves, he loses faith. faith. 
Those sermons all have titles like, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. And listen, there is nothing, nothing wrong with that interpretation. Like I said, I've preached on it many times myself. There are lessons to be learned there. But you hear me say a lot that there's never just one lesson or message or understanding to take from any given scripture passage. Instead of asking what the Bible means, we need to ask what it says to particular people in a particular time and place and situation. So what if instead of focusing on Peter's faith, we ask why in the world he ever got out of the boat in the first place? Peter is not the hero of this story, that's Jesus. Peter doesn't belong out there on the water. That's God's job. What if, what if Peter getting out of the boat was never Jesus' idea at all? Jesus never says, if you have faith, come to me on the water. Peter is the one who says, Lord, if it is you, call me to come to you. Now listen, in the Bible, if it is you, always comes from people questioning Jesus' identity. In the wilderness, the tempter says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down. At the foot of the cross, the naysayers taunt him, if you are the Son of God, come down from there, and then we will believe. And out there on the Sea of Galilee, Peter says, if it is you, command me to come to you. You of little faith, Jesus says, why did you doubt? But what if Jesus isn't scolding Peter for being afraid? What if Jesus is asking Peter, why he doubted Jesus in the first place. Jesus clearly identifies himself. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. What if Jesus is underscoring the obvious truth that we're not the ones who are supposed to walk on water? That's Jesus' job description, not ours. When Jesus grabs Peter, he doesn't place Peter back on the water, he puts him back in the boat. Why didn't you just stay in the boat, Peter? You see where I'm going. I think maybe the boat is where we belong most often. The oldest image of a church, of the, the church, is a boat on a storm-tossed sea with a cross as a mast. Look up here. You'll see the beams of this church look like the upside-down keel of a ship. The section where you all are sitting is called the nave, which comes from the Latin word for navy. None of that is a coincidence. Honestly, it's not a terrible metaphor. A ship on a storm-tossed sea. The boat is what keeps us safe when the wind and the waves are against us. The boat is what keeps us together. The boat is where we can help one another and pool our resources and lift each other up when we feel like we're going under. 
What if the church were more like a boat? Now, if you've ever owned a boat or have a friend who has owned one, you know that B-O-A-T is just an acronym for bust out another thousand. Boats are expensive toys. I get it. It's not easy to fund this operation, this boat at New Providence, and it takes all of us to make it happen. See, this is not a Disney cruise where a few people do everything while the rest of us sit around and sip frosty drinks with paper umbrellas in them. This is an all-hands-on-deck enterprise, and it only works if we all do our part. It doesn't help for someone to say, you know, I'm going back to my cabin. This doesn't interest or involve me. It's not a time for rugged individualism. Here, hold my paddle while I go out there to tackle the waves by myself. It's also not a place to say, well, thank God we're safe, and ignore all those people drowning in the waters around us. There is always room for more, and there are always people who need what this church has to offer. Because in the end, I tend to think that the boat is where we belong, where we're called to hang in and work together, confident that God is present with us, even in the bleakest hours. That is God's promise. And God has yet to abandon ship. Amen?